You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 189. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sarah-san! <laughs> What's hey. happening, Jelena? <laughs> My cat is like really loud. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. All right, so the three of us for a full episode. That was it some time ago. Was it? Though? Yeah. For ah, okay, for a full for episode, a regular okay. episode with yeah, the yeah, poping yeah. and the whatever. Okay, sorry, I'm still sleeping, but never mind. I'm happy that we're having all three of us um, at the same time. It's uh, it's really cool. It's always a challenge, but it's always very cool. I'll try to stay awake, and you try to. <laughs> They, well, we all try to stay awake, basically. For I'll start to reasons. wake up. <laughs> but uh, I don't need much to wake up. I, actually, the moment I started looking at um, the news about one of the greatest things happening in recent history, and that is global climate strike. Mm-hmm. What a great thing. It's really taking off. To think of the fact that it stemmed from the action of one young girl sitting in front of the Swedish parliament... Uh, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, that, it's very unexpected, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe that this episode will go out before the next event, because it goes on uh, from September the 20th to the September the 27th, which is a uh, Friday, I believe. Yeah. Yes, I'm really hoping that on Friday the 27th, there will be even more people out on the streets demanding action on climate change or climate policies, because it's really ridiculous. And I, what I really like about how Greta Thunberg, sorry, I don't know how to, how to pronounce her name properly. How do you say it, Pontus? Thunberg. So ignore the H. Thunberg. 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 Okay, okay, I'm, I'm not even <laughs> close. <laughs> But what I really like about her attitude, and she says that, that her superpower is her Asperger's, she approaches things a little bit differently because of that. And that is amazing because she just keeps telling politicians that, you know what, I don't care. You don't do enough. You <laughs> don't do anything. You just don't try hard enough. And that's what we need on a global scale with lots of people supporting this movement. So well done. And I really hope that this will keep growing all across the world. They say on the 20th, it was going on in 150 countries, mm. which is just phenomenal. Mm. So, so let's all hope that it will be successful. Even I considered striking on the 27th. <laughs> But... I think we have our own thing to do, and that is an actual episode. And this episode will be a regular episode, a segmented one, with one thing at least added to it. And this week, that one thing is, instead of Yalana hitting us with a This Week in Skepticism item, now we are going to listen to Massimo Polidoro and uh, the interview that I recorded with him in Padova at Chica Fest. Yay! <laughs> 
Cheekup Fest 2009 just ended a couple of hours ago. A, f- a few things uh, had to be arranged, and uh, now we are outside on the streets of Padua, where it all t- uh, took place. And here with me is Massimo Polidoro, who's uh, I can say the engine behind this uh, <laughs> grand event, a festival. No, it wasn't even one event; it was a festival. Yeah. So, Massimo, yes, how does it look now? Just after After the it, it ended, a lot more relaxing, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> no, yes, I'm I'm very satisfied, very happy. You know, it's been um, a full year of work to do this. It's a weekend, but it took us a, a one full year. This is the second year that we are doing this um, Chica Fest. It's a festival of science and curiosity. That's how we call it. It's I know it's uh, science and curiosity. It's quite about the same thing, but. If you only say a festival of science, your risk of uh, science is, is very serious and maybe you put them off. It's, it's curiosity, something that appeals to your uh, senses, to too to many aspects. So we call it like that. It took us a long time because, you know, to work something with 200 and I think 50 events in three days. Uh, all kinds of events. You know, there are uh, talks, of course, uh, panels and performances, uh, lectures, more serious, more fun, shows, theater, uh, meetings, debates, uh, laboratories, workshops, and then you know things that I don't know how to call them. We had a, a couch on wheels. That we yeah, that was super <laughs> cool. I mean, it was in the middle of the uh, historic center, and uh, people were just sitting on there. And sometimes it was even moved around. So yes, exactly, wow. <laughs> the idea was that just bring science to where people is, and uh, so the, there was the host of this uh, science on the couch. That's mm-hmm. the title of the <laughs> the format, and he met uh, the scientists, the researchers, the popularizers, and all of the guests. That we're here at the festival and, uh, and chat with them, with the speaker, of course, and lots of people gather around, like you go to see a, a juggler or, a, I don't know, a fire breather or whatever. And there was another very interesting event, uh, not an event, a venue. It was an yeah. open loggia of, of one of the buildings. Yes. I saw that as a very good idea because a, a lot of people, especially in a historic town like Padova, a lot of people are just walking around and they stopped for a moment. They stopped for to eavesdrop or, or, <laughs> or and, and they stayed for a while. So it was all amazing. You had to have a lot of people... <laughs> helping you in organizing this. How many people did you work with? Well, this is a great question. The staff that worked for a year on this, we were four people. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, during the weekend, we got 100 volunteers Mm -hmm. and 50 staff people that came from the skeptical organizations uh, all over Italy. And the volunteers, we gathered them mostly from students. We just made an open call. Uh-huh. If you want to be a part of this uh, event, just and we got 270, I think, uh, applications. Mm-hmm. We we had to do, you know, uh, a bit uh, of screening. Uh, yeah, a bit of screening because you get everything, and I mean it. Yeah. And but uh, you know, Skype calls and Skype conference. At the end, we we got 100, and of course, we got so many because there is always uh, the drop. Uh, somebody is healed, somebody else has a, some, a problem and I cannot come. So at the end, I think we were about 80 mm-hmm. working volunteers. Next time, maybe we, we get to 150 and then <laughs> we are around 100. 
But even with this number, one had a feeling that you basically occupied the whole city center. It was amazing to see everywhere the banners of Chikap and Chikap Fest and info points set up in different parts of the city at the different venues. So it was very, very well organized. But I also noticed that it wasn't only Chikap that was behind this. Organization-wise, yeah. probably it was. Yeah. But the city, the university, it was a big, big, big collaboration. How did that come about? As I said, it took a, it took actually it took two years because the first time we did it, everybody was skeptical. They never seen anything like this. I said, "No, it can work. Believe us. We know." No, we know. So we really had very, very a very small budget, very small budget. So we were practically forced to have a fee in order to participate to the participant, and uh, in, and, it, and it got crowded anyway. So we said, "Now." You see, this is the potential. We can have a lot more people if we can do it for free. They can come and for free they go. Just you know, the evening in the theater, of course, you get, have to. You need a ticket, but everything else you can do for free. And uh, and so we got, uh, of course, the university, the the town, uh, the province, the region, uh, and then we got the Ministry of Instruction. Then we got the uh, Institute of um, Health. The public, I mean, the National Institute of Health, the uh, and lots of um, of institutions, scientific and cultural, but also lots of uh, supporters from uh, you know banks or um, organization. Audible, for example, you know Audible, yeah, is one of the partners because we had various meetings with the podcast uh, performers. I have a podcast now, thanks to Audible on science. And it just went online last week. Uh, it's uh, 20 episodes. And we did an episode live with a guest. And so there were so many, you know, this time. And again, this time they saw that it worked even more. Mm-hmm. Because we had more venues, more talks, contemporary, of course, because the biggest room that we can get is 500, 600 people uh, capacity. But the people were queuing outside, as you saw. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so the bigger you get, the more people you get. That there were events that it was absolutely impossible to get into. Uh, I tried, I tried <laughs> several of them, and I failed miserably. Uh, but it was in a in a way, it was fantastic to see all that enthusiasm around science and skepticism and curiosity, and it was somewhat international as well, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So we had at least two talks in English. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, yours, for example. It was it, oh, you, Mine was in Italian. I'm sorry, I missed it. So, you see? Uh, well, we had uh, yeah, various uh, guests from abroad. Um, well, Massimo Pigliucci, of course, is a friend. He speaks in Italian, even if he comes from New York. Uh, and also Sergio de la Sala, who is a neuroscientist from uh, Edinburgh, but he's Italian as well. But, yes, we aim to have more, more uh, international speakers. And we had Brian Deere. We had uh, Richard Wiseman, of course, another great friend of ours. Uh, last year we had, um, no, two years ago, I'm sorry, uh, Randy. Yeah. Randy was here. That was his last his last tour, and we were uh, so happy to have him. <laughs> uh, yes, but, the, you know, the, the opportunity now is to, to get even bigger. And it's, it's going to be <laughs> more and more difficult to deal with, because it's <laughs> if it took us one year of work to do this, and the idea is to have it every year, 
at the same time. Mm-hmm. Also, we were very lucky because it's quite sunny and, uh, and warm. It looks like July and it's mid of September. Is it going to be held, uh, the next one, is it going to be held in Padova again? I think it, you are uh, like uh, forced to do that. Okay. Because, uh, as I said, it took us two years to get to this point of convincing people. You go to another city, you have to start from yeah. scratch. And now you have a partnership with the city, with the university and everything. And, and not to talk about... as well. Newspapers, radio, television. So that's important as well, if you want to have a, yeah. a coverage. Yeah. So, my last question, because I understand that there are a lot of people waiting for you to go back and, and, and have an, um, a hopefully relaxing evening after all that work. So, I'm asking this because of our listeners are from all over the place. Yeah. Should, should we expect a little bit more of an international touch to it at some point? Or a one track that is a bit, of, bit more international in the future? I'm pretty sure that you have something in your mind already. <laughs> you really might, huh? <laughs> Yes, uh, that would be a great idea, you know, to have a, a section of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, we cannot do the whole thing in English because Ita- Italy still is a country where yeah. English is not like a second language, but uh, slowly we're getting there. But a, a section of it would be great, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm starting to reason about this and any ideas coming from your listeners mm-hmm. are welcome. Great. Thank you very much. And indeed, thank you for this uh, great experience. I'm pretty sure that you do not have too many numbers just now, but one... But as I say, last year we had 12,000 participants. This year, I think it was a lot more. And it was amazing. I haven't ever seen anything like this. (laughs) So thank you very much again, Massimo Polidoro. And uh, I hope you'll have um, an opportunity to get some rest before you start organizing the next one. Absolutely. At least one day. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Guys, I still cannot believe that I was there and I experienced the magnitude of that event. (laughs) I'm looking forward to hearing you uh, deliver that Italian talk that you did. Actually, there were recordings Mm -hmm. of all talks. So at some point, we might be able to get get our hands on it. I'm not sure I want it to be released. But But, hey, everyone has their dirty secrets, right? Mm. No, they're doing a fantastic job. And I, I wonder how we can steal their concept with pride and do something similar in other places that would be great they're always happy to talk about it they're very generous when they need to share their ideas and yeah. uh, their experience and it's an amazing organization cheek up um, yeah, in general as a whole as one of the organizations that has i think two people working for them as employees not full-time i think mm. but still mm. and that makes a hell of a lot of difference yeah that helps mm. it definitely helps mm. all right Let's just move on. I would really like to hear you, Pontus, poking the Pope again. Yes, at the Toronto International Film Festival in September. Now, where am I going with this? (laughs) There was a new film screened that I'm very curious about. It will be released in December and it's called The Two Popes. And it stars Jonathan Price as Francis and Anthony Hopkins as Benedict. And it's 
fictional, of course. Nice choice of actors. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I do like both of those actors very much. And I saw the trailer. It's a sort of a bromance between the two popes. And the, the timing is supposed to be around the time when Benedict resigned as Pope, but before Francis was actually appointed. So I haven't seen it, obviously, and it's, it's in the form of a dialogue between the two. At first, they don't really like each other, but then they find some common ground, I, I assume. The reviews are promising, not outstanding, but uh, since I just love those actors and the whole concept and the idea of listening in on their private conversation... It's very attractive to me, even, of course, it is fictional. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should do a movie review episode when it's been released. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that, maybe, maybe. But in the real world, uh, there was a new book published about uh, Francis. It, was, it came out on 4th of September, and it's called Comment l'Amérique veut changer de pape? <laughs> Oh, that sounds great. Uh, uh, it sounds great. Well, it's French, of course. And it's uh, it's written by a French journalist called uh, Nicolas Zenes. And the title translates roughly to How America Wants to Replace the Pope. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be translated to in- into English, so I can't read it. My French isn't that good. I, mean, I might struggle through it, but it would take forever and I would probably misunderstand the whole thing. Anyway, reportedly it's an analysis of what happened last August uh, 2018 when the former Vatican ambassador to the United States, Carlo Maria Vigano, demanded the Pope's resignation. And he was then hailed as a hero in some American conservative circles who don't like uh, Francis very much. The interesting thing with this book is that it has resulted in several reactions from Francis, which acknowledge that there is an internal struggle within the church. When Francis was presented with a copy of the book by the author himself, he jokingly called the book a bomb. And he said, it's, uh, and this is pretty testy for being a pope. <laughs> he said, it is an honor that the Americans attack me. And I think that's remarkable because that's not how you keep the peace in an organization, by alienating <laughs> a whole continent like that. And he went on to say, quote, I don't like it when the criticism is under the table and they smile and show their teeth and then there's a knife in the back. And uh, he also said that he's not afraid of a schism with the church, but he prays that it will not come to that. And the fact that he's openly talking about a schism within the Catholic Church is quite uh, extraordinary. This was in a conversation with reporters. So maybe, I I don't know, but maybe Frankie is starting to crack a bit under the pressure. And Mm -hmm. he's losing his patience with the opposition. Uh, And there is clearly a power struggle underneath this. And I've said so before. I think that the next pope elected will probably be a much more conservative one. I think the pendulum always swings back from one extreme to the other. And there is a big opposition to Frankie, quite clearly. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought when you were talking about this, that is he beginning to crack under the pressure or what's going on? What's happening to him? Looks out of character. <laughs> yeah, it would. You would think that he would like to try to keep a facade of no, everything's fine. We're all friendly yeah. here, and nothing's happening. So, the fact that he's openly talking to journalists about a schism and and those things, it's hmm, must mean something. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you for poking the Pope once again, and uh, we shall move on. 
because uh, we have a couple of things that have happened in the last couple of weeks in Europe. The Russians are in the news. They're... What? <laughs> <laughs> One of the secret lab facilities in Russia, in Siberia, had a fire explosion. The problem with it, there's only a small tiny problem, that this lab kept one of the most deadly viruses in the world, ranging from smallpox to Ebola. Mm. Oops. What's interesting about the reporting is that initially the Russians denied the explosion. Of course they did. What explosion? (laughs) (laughs) There's no explosion, (laughs) even though it was completely obvious. I think one person is currently in hospital in critical condition. And then they denied that the lab consisted or held any dangerous viruses. And now, of course, all this information came out that they do, in fact, have those. Uh, but the Russians denying that there is any danger to the greater public of in being infected. I have my doubts. Yeah. And <laughs> it sounds as something from a sci-fi movie, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, whilst Russia probably is scrambling to cover as much of their asses as possible, I only have one question, you know, <laughs> is anything being done about those viruses? You know, are they, are they being stopped from being spread? I know that they're saying, oh, the viruses weren't affected and whatever. I'm very, very um, skeptical. Yeah. So what, the, what the, they're basically saying is that all you get if you get in, in contact with these viruses is a vaccination because they are <laughs> not fully functional, uh, fully operational viruses. They are just uh, virus samples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, You can vaccinate yourself against Ebola and against uh, yeah, yeah. smallpox and everything, yeah. right? <laughs> it's basically a good thing. Yeah, no. Well, I'm not sure about that. No, me neither. Is it a remote place where this happened? Well, you did say yeah. Siberia, so... Uh. Yes. No, Novosibirsk is a very... It's a place far, far away from anything. In a galaxy okay. far away, yeah. But people travel there, and people travel from Novosibirsk to, to the rest of the world, you know. Yeah, obviously, that's a, that's the issue. So it's not the virus spreading, because the virus cannot spread by itself. So yeah, it, it needs a host. Travel. In fact, I knew a guy from England who traveled to Novosibirsk. <laughs> so that's a worrying thing. Ah, did no, you say I, your goodbyes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a, a mathematician. And I think there was like a cultural exchange between the universities. But anyway, it's not like isolated completely, right? Even mm. Siberia is communicating with the rest of the world. Hopefully this thing is being contained. However much they they can lie to the public, however much they like, but, you know. What fascinates me about situations like this is that even though we live in the age of satellites and satellite imagery a couple of hours after an explosion, and there's still this mindset of denial that, yeah, of course, it does nothing happened, come on, leave us alone. And then a couple of hours later, when everything comes out, then... You're faced with a situation that you you just became ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So ah. they're still f- following the same handbook like they did in the fifties. Yeah, the from 60s. Oh my god, forty fifty really years are. ago. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. And, and, that's right. and listen, and I think it, it's even more encouraged now that Putin is in charge. You know, I think uh, it's all about generating. I was going to say generating public opinions by misinformation, hmm. but anyway. So we, that's all we know. Let's see how it develops. Mm. I think we all we're all pretty far away from Siberia. Yeah, just it, that, just don't talk to anyone who who has been there recently. 
Yeah, <laughs> but but it focuses again on the question: Should we destroy the last reserves of the smallpox virus? Mm-hmm. Because, because these things can I happen. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Okay. Speaking of viruses, there's um, news from Sweden regarding uh, the HPV vaccination program. As everywhere else, uh, the Swedish political landscape is difficult at uh, at the moment with a minority government that struggles to get things through. But at least one thing came out of the new public budget this autumn, and that is that the common vaccination program for kids will now include HPV vaccination not just for girls, but also for boys. The report of the motivation of this is not totally accurate, though. Because everybody's talking about, yes, we have to prevent also the 120 to 150 cases of cancer per year in males. And of course, that's a good thing. You have to, you have to prevent that as well. But nobody's mentioning the obvious fact that even if cervical cancer only is an issue for half the population, and that's why we already had a vaccination for girls, that's not the full story because the girls get the virus from somewhere and most often it's from a male person. So uh, it's not just preventing the the cancer cases in boys, it's it's also helping to prevent uh, uh, cervical cancers. We've talked about this before and that we are pro-vaccinating everybody and there's even been theoretical calculations that show that it could be possible to totally eradicate HPV in HPV induced cancers but i don't think we're very close to that but uh, if more and more countries are starting to provide HPV vaccinations for everybody that at least is a start yeah however in most of the countries where it's provided they try to vaccinate those at an age that is low enough so that they haven't started their mm-hmm. sexual life yet However, it turns out that some infections do not necessarily enter the bloodstream. They stay localized in the genitalia. That might give us a reason to vaccinate even those who are sexually active. I mean, it might help to prevent new infections or even cervical cancer or other types of cancer. No, I, I agree. I've never understood why you would give up or, and say that, well, everybody above 17, 18, they already have the virus, so let's not vaccinate them. That, that's a strange philosophy. Yeah, the, the, the target age is uh, 12 or 13, I think. So they try to keep it to before at their first sexual encounter. Well, that depends on what country you're in and uh, what religion you follow, because in some countries that means that uh, you would need to vaccinate nine-year-olds or even lower. So Mm -hmm. nine-year-olds are being wed to older men um, in some countries. Yes, it is terrible. But you know what else is terrible? And that is happening in Hungary. It was happening in Hungary. It's a a bit of a success story that I would like to share. A couple of months ago, at the beginning of summer, someone who's following the work of the Hungarian Skeptic Society closely sent us a letter drawing our attention to something that's happening at one of the most prestigious medical universities in the country. It's Samowice University, and they have further education center on every field of medicine. You need to further educate medical practitioners 
obviously. However, this person pointed out to us that there are 27 different fields of medicine where the curriculum consists of things like new Germanic medicine. Mm. You know, Rika Gerhammer and his madness. And all that was part of the curriculum for 25 different fields. Wow. And we had had no idea that that was the case. So what we did, I mean, the board of the Hungarian Skeptic Society, we decided to send a letter to the director of the Further Education Center to ask the question whether it is something that they are aware of and if the, they think that this is the correct line of actions to provide this kind of course in, uh, med- in medicine. And um, they said that actually they did not look into this very closely. So they agreed with us that this has no place in scientific medical trainings. But they argued that medical practitioners should probably experience the other side as well. So they should have some knowledge about new Germanic medicine and other bogus things like that. But they did offer that um, they will look into this and uh, they will try to get rid of it. And um, a couple of weeks later, we did a bit of a check on the progress of the situation. And it turns out that uh, all but one of these um, curricula are now listed without this course. Mm -hmm. So the new Germanic course has been struck off from the list of the courses. uh, And that one program that still has it is called Doctors Who Are Practicing Complementer Medicine. Wow, so you should get rid of the whole thing there. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so the, the the good course of actions would be to just strike strike it off yeah. right away. Yeah, I yeah. I d- d- still consider it. Yeah, still good uh, news. Quite a, a, a good step forward. It's one small step for science, but a giant leap for uh, medicine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So a bit more about Russians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, there have been um, a rise of spreading of uh, anti-vaccination sentiment all over social media for a while. You don't say. I know, right? What a shocking piece of news. But <sighs> but I think it's it's been developing for a while and it's kind of coming to a head. Twitter is, is one of the places where the misinformation is spread the most. And after looking into it, our friends at snops.com realized that a lot of the accounts created to spread this misinformation are coming from the Russian bot farms. So they are generating anti-vaccination Twitter threads, um, memes. There was one with, <laughs> with the Matrix person. Yeah, stop vaccination, I've got an immune system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, Yeah, that's why you need vaccination, idiot. I'm so glad (laughs) I'm not on social media. Get off social media. But what they're doing, it's interesting because they're generating a lot of anti-vaccination tweets, but also the pro-vaccination tweets to counter it for some reason. (laughs) Uh, Keep it unbiased. This information is, is uh, prevalent on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and YouTube. And these platforms are trying to come up with a good strategy against the disinformation. So either 
downgrading it or banning the content or trying to basically silence the voices of the anti-vaccination misinformation campaigns. What's the gain? That's that's my question. Why? It's just spreading uh, insecurity. Nobody can trust anything. That makes yeah. it easier to lie later on. Pinterest also came out as, as a platform where this misinformation was spread. So, yeah, I'm not sure how, how successful these things would be banning in, uh, the content. So the Facebook, that was a very, very kind of wishy-washy statement. Facebook announced that it would take steps to diminish anti-vaccine content. Mm-hmm. Well, they will no longer allow anti-vaccine advertising. I didn't realize they did allow that. So that's a, first of all, why the hell <laughs> it used to happen before? But anyway, at least that's no longer going to be happening. Mm-hmm. And then they're also considering removing fundraising tools from anti-vaccination Facebook pages. Is it effective? Yeah, I don't know. It makes people think, oh, you know, oh, now they're forbidding this and forbidding it. It's all like propaganda and government control. I think education still plays a large role in this, pushing for the right, you know, from from the beginning, from the school level. Yeah. But yeah, uh, watch this space. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think of it, if you go back to when the wall came down and the collapse of Soviet Union, etc., a lot of that was because information was starting to flow freely over the borders and you couldn't keep people in the dark anymore. So they revolted and they, they said, we, we won't have this anymore. I think what they're doing now, Russia and others, are they're spreading all kinds of misinformation. They don't care about anti-vaccination, really. They just spread any yeah, kind of in- information whatever. because that's one way of fighting the information flow because then when some inconvenient truth comes up you can say well you can't uh, trust anything on the internet so it's fake news yes mm. yeah so it's just an opportunity yeah well just like with other uh, other topics like election topics and things. yeah mm, yeah but do you know what's really certain that is that the planet is getting hotter indeed oh, yeah. yeah you say so but <laughs> The UN Climate Action Summit took place this week and the Science Advisory Group for the summit released a report that brings together the largest data on the climate crisis from eight research organizations. And the chief message is that the Earth's surface is getting warmer and we're all falling more behind in our efforts to stop this. Estimates suggest that the period between 2015 and 2019 will be 1.1 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels and up to 0.3 degrees Celsius higher than the previous five-year period. And this is not a surprise. Scientists have been predicting this since the 70s. We know what greenhouse gases are. We know what effect they have. And no one listening to this podcast, at least, should be surprised. But what is crazy to me is how it's still possible for anyone, even if you are below average intelligence, and I'm not sure everybody is, how is it possible to spend energy denying this fact and arguing that we don't need to do anything about this? How can the president of the fucking United States keep saying that this is a conspiracy by the Chinese, while others say that NASA... By the way, reporting to the same president has invented this to get funding for their space program or whatever. It's just crazy. So um, again, we get confirmation that climate change is here and uh, it's getting worse. 
Mm. Oh, at least there is one place where uh, they don't have to worry about that because it, that place supposedly doesn't even exist. <laughs> and that is Bielefeld. We talked about this situation uh, in Bielefeld in Germany a couple of episodes ago, but the campaign seems to be over. It, it was basically a competition that uh, the Bielefeld City Hall and the City Council decided to run. That builds on the fact that uh, there, there is an ongoing conspiracy theory that Bielefeld is totally made up. It's, it, it's not an existing city. It's a, a pretty large city, actually, up in uh, North uh, Rhine-Westphalia in uh, Western Germany. Yes, it's uh, of, of about 340,000 inhabitants. So that's big city disappear from the maps. But they came up with a brilliant idea. It was the 25th anniversary of a satirical article published online. But it, it gained some kind of momentum uh, within these 25 years. So they decided to go for it and um, issued and launched a competition a call for evidence that Bielefeld is made up and it's it's non-existent. And the letters, the tweets and everything started pouring in and a million euros were offered to anyone who can prove and provide considerable and very strong evidence that uh, Bielefeld doesn't exist. So this is why they launched a marketing campaign, hashtag Bielefeld million. It launched on the 21st of August, and they say that the end, the number of entries that they received was around the thousands. So <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing, among which there were poems, there were pictures. However, some people took it very, very seriously. And on the website, there is a website, bielefeldmillion.de, they categorized the entries into historical evidence, mathematical evidence, and physical evidence. They even um, mentioned the people who were coming up with those uh, pieces of evidence. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And they say that they didn't dismiss anything just offhand. So they consulted with historians, with scientists of Bielefeld University, obviously also a non-existent university, and other scholars. This is how they decided whether to take provided evidence seriously or not. Well, the 800-year-old city remains existent. <laughs> and uh, I think it was a, a really cool, a very, very ingenious idea. And uh, how they finished this whole campaign was uh, that they took a massive boulder... A 600-kilogram boulder. It's not that massive, obviously, by the way, but it's, it's big enough to put inscriptions into it as a commemoration of the conspiracy theory, <laughs> along with a QR code, which, uh, when scanned, takes the visitors to the official website, Bielefeld Million. <laughs> yeah, well done, Bielefeld and the Bielefeld City Council. I think it's funny. I think it, it has a little bit of this uh, sense of ridiculing uh, alternative ideas if they don't hold water at all. Uh, it works too. I'm, I'm getting curious. I, I want to go there now. Why, why don't we put the next European Skeptics Congress in Bielefeld? To Bielefeld, yeah. <laughs> That's, That's because right. of it. You know what? We should bring it up at the next uh, board meeting. Yeah, yeah. You, heard, you <laughs> heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, one other item. Uh, there are four researchers and experts in criminology in Sweden that has come together to criticize politicians regarding something which has rubbed me the wrong way for a long, long time. Let me put a question to you guys. Why do we put criminals in jail? To keep them away from the rest of society. Yeah. Protect the public, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Jelena, why, why would you put somebody in jail? Yeah, to keep them away, protect the society, to... Uh, well, the, it used, I used to think for rehabilitation purposes, but you know. Yeah, that's that's another reason. So, mm. so there are a number of reasons, and they are somewhat contradictory as well. You want to to have it as a discouragement or a prevention thing. So you don't do this because you will go to jail. So you have it as a threat. You have it as a protection of the public. You can have it as a rehabilitation. Maybe. I don't think that happens enough. And mm. you can also ha- use it as punishment. You see, Revenge. You are a bad person, so you need to suffer. So we put you in jail. The background to to the debate here is that there's been an increase in shootings and criminal bombings in Sweden over the last couple of years. As of end of August, there has been 182 shootings in Sweden, uh, which is an increase of 11% compared to the same period last year. Hmm. And as of 31st of July, there's been 120 bombings, which is an increase of 45%. So that, that looks bad. But if you look at violent crimes in general, the situation is pretty stable during the 2000s, and it's much lower than in the 90s. It's just changed form. They're using other kinds of of weapons and other kinds of methods to be violent. Anyway, of course, these reports about shootings and bombings get a lot of attention in the news, and the political parties are now competing to be the strictest party when it comes to fighting crime. Longer jail time, harder punishments for young adults, special tough measures against problematic neighborhoods are what is commonly suggested. But what these researchers and experts want to highlight is that scientifically, we know that these actions do not help. And in some cases, they even have the opposite effect. And I don't know what helps. I'm not an expert in these things at all. But what I have read again and again is that stricter punishment does not change any criminal's likelihood of committing a crime because mm-hmm. people don't count on getting caught. They, exactly. they wouldn't do it if they thought they were getting caught. What we also know is that if you spend longer time in jail, you are more likely to become a repeat offender. So again, I don't know what the solution is here, but I'm very annoyed with politicians that in a populist way just demand stricter punishment just to buy votes or because they are uh, misinformed. We also need to go back and decide why we put people in jail. Is it because of prevention? Is it because of protecting the public? Is it because of rehabilitation? Or is it punishment? It could be a combination of those, but it's difficult to to make it. But you really have to think about this. You just don't solve anything by saying we will increase the time in jail from eight years to 10 years. Nobody cares and it doesn't help. Just because it sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, it should all be based on... um, I mean, I would... Yeah, I was going to say science, but obviously it's difficult to measure stuff like this. But if you do have data... Please follow the data and follow yeah. what comes from the data as a consequence. Don't follow your gut feelings. It's more important than that. Correct. Yes. 
Good. I think it, it's time for us to have a further look at who's been really wrong lately. Yes, today's really wrong comes from Mikael in Germany. Thanks a lot. One of the listeners there who sent us this tip. Yeah, thank you. This is on a topic that we have followed for some time and I was actually waiting for the result. But since it wasn't widely reported outside Germany, I almost missed it. So thank you very much. This is about Jens Spahn, who we have had such high hopes for. And for listeners who are not aware, Jens Spahn is the Federal Health Minister of Germany. Mm-hmm. So after the defunding of homeopathy by the NHS in the UK and lately the decision in France to phase out funding of homeopathy by the end of next year, Jens Spahn declared that he would take a look at the German situation. And that sounded very promising and we discussed that in episode 179 in July. Well, boo, it did not happen. Because on 17th of September, he declared that since it was such a small amount and also such a small percentage of the total spend of homeopathy that fell under public funding, there was no need to change the rules. The statutory health insurance in Germany pays only, he says, 20 million euro for homeopathy every year. Which is not that much, he says, um, not compared to the 40 billion of the total drug expenses. That's a ridiculous uh, argument. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, the topic has been discussed quite a lot in, in Germany, and there's been vocal opinions for bo- on both sides of this. So why is this ridiculous then? If, if it's just a small amount, uh, it is still wrong to keep the funding. Because, first of all, you could argue... <laughs> course that 20 million euro is quite a lot of money even if it's just a fraction of the total medical cost you can still do a lot of good for 20 million euro yeah but one problem is that the funding is not there because the politicians think that homeopathy works it's there because people want it to be included it's like the referendum we talked about in switzerland several years ago that voted to include nonsense into health care insurance because of course popular Yeah, because if you ask people, do you want this covered too? It sounds like a good thing, right? So, of course, I want more things included in my insurance if everybody, everything else stays the same. Uh, Now, that's obviously wrong. And it proves that you shouldn't leave scientific things or facts to democracy. Facts are the same regardless of what you think. But coming to the main issue with Germany keeping the funding for homeopathy is that it gives it a fake impression that it is a legitimate thing. Only 13% of all homeopathic remedies was paid for by health insurance in Germany last year. But that means that over 150 million euro was spent on this nonsense on over-the-counter sales in the pharmacies. Mm -hmm. And this is money spent on sugar pills. That's fraud in my book. If, on the other hand, if there was a clear message from the authorities that we're not going to pay for this because it's nonsense, then at least some people would start to question why they spend so much money on fake medicine. Mm. So boo Jens Spahn, yes. you didn't come to the right conclusion. <laughs> so, for just looking narrowly on government spending and ignoring the harm of homeopathy in general... The German health minister, Jens Spahn, gets today's prize for being really wrong. Again, 
deservedly so. It almost sounded he was going in the right direction. I'm very disappointed. Yes, yes. we had very high hopes for, mm. for that direction, actually. Ah, mm. uh, wow. And it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument that it's just a small amount. It's classic foot-in-the-door technique. Just something really tiny. We don't need to worry about that. We can allow that. Mm. And then the next step, what will it be? Where Where will we say that, yeah, this is not tolerable anymore? when it compares to the the rest of the medical funding that's when we we will start considering that we we should probably not fund it mm. Ugh, ridiculous it is okay well i think we are getting very close to concluding the show but we cannot leave without a good quote yellow have you got a good quote for us yes short and sweet it's a quote from Plato, a Greek philosopher, and um, I think it's a, it's a, something that's being forgotten more and more now because of the social media and presence what, on the Plato? internet. It's a, it's about books, <laughs> <laughs> well, and Plato. Books give a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. I just thought it was a good wow, one. Very anyway. poetic or romantic. Okay, what kind of books did Plato have? He wrote books, didn't he? Probably of other Greek philosophers, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, but I'm trying to imagine the books themselves. The, what kind of books? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Read more books. I subscribe to that. I'm trying to get my son to read a little bit more books because uh, young people today, they actually don't read very well. Yeah, and the attention span is getting smaller and smaller, so yes. the, the books are getting shorter yeah. and shorter. Yeah. So. But the the other thing is that uh, the, the content is not very captivating. I don't know about your countries, guys, but in our country, it's compulsory to read certain books. And you have a list of books that you have to read. And those are very, very old, not very engaging for young people kind of books. I love Goethe and Faust. I it's I think it's great, but I didn't like it at seventeen. I don't think that's the first book you should put in a young person's <laughs> hands. Yeah, start, I, start I, with fun things like fiction, like Harry Potter, or Harry whatever. Potter. Yeah, that's right. Or, or uh, um, there are thousands of good books, and just let people get into the habit of enjoying books. Then they will discover what did you say, Goethe, uh, <laughs> later on if they want to, but. Yeah, but in our schools, at least, I don't, I really don't know about other countries, but in our schools, there is a certain sense of elitism, of mm. an elitistic attitude towards literature. Th- those people who are in the position of telling the young kids what to read, they tend to categorize them as shitty literature and good, valued, valuable literature. And they think that that children should only read the good ones, the, the boring stuff. Yeah, the boring <laughs> stuff. But why? But how, how on earth does someone think that a child reading boring stuff in books will end up wanting to read more and more and more of it? My my approach has always been, and this has been with films as well. I've let my kids see films that I think are silly, stupid, and mm-hmm. not very yeah. good because. The more films you've seen and the more books you've read, the better you become yourself to identify, well, actually, this wasn't very good. This was low quality. Mm -hmm. That will arrive, I think, 
by itself. If you read a lot, if you see a lot of films, you, you get better in distinguishing what's good from what's bad. Well, we could uh, we could discuss it further whether it will automatically bring that about, because I do think that a f- some kind of training, some kind of other knowledge, other experience is necessary for that. Mm-hmm. But in general, I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but as a general rule, everything has to come to an end at some point. So this will be the point that we conclude the show. And I'd like to thank both of you for being here today. Thank you. I would also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. Пока-пока. We slap. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe What makes you optimistic now? Um, not sure. <laughs> it's too early in the morning. I don't have anything. Okay. <laughs> Hello, cat. What's happening to, to the cat? She's just very excited. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a dog. Are you sure it's a cat? She's hilarious. No, she, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you check. Good. <laughs> Whatever.